All right, it's again Revelation 5, if you have your Bibles. Um, you'll see there on your handout, I want to just do a little quick recap, really in the form of a statement, uh, as we look through Revelation 4 last week. Uh, so remember, we progressed past the seven churches. We, we wrapped up that first vision that John gets um, through Revelation chapter 3. And Revelation chapter 4 really begins a new vision that carries on for the next couple of chapters. Um, and part of that vision is being taken into the throne room, what we call the throne room there. Um, and it's just an incredible, incredible image that, that John gets there. Um, and so on your handout here, I have just this kind of a summary that Revelation 4 is a picture of the Trinity in the throne room. Um, it really is a picture of the Trinity in the throne room. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are present there. Um, and of a heavenly council. And of a heavenly council. Um, yeah, kind of, she's got them there. Um, yeah, if, you, if you're missing a handout, Charlotte's got those. She can bring those to you there. Um, so you have your first kind of blank there is Revelation 4 is a picture of the Trinity in the throne room and of a heavenly council. Heavenly council. Um, we see these, these four living creatures. Um, we see the 24 elders, um, and they are declaring in worship that the Lord God Almighty is holy, holy, holy. Um, Holy, holy, holy. So it's, it's really this uh, brilliant picture here. And um, you have God the Father. You see this kind of verse 2 through 3. Um, so at first, you know, you get in verse 1 of chapter 4, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and you go back to chapter 1, and this voice belongs to Jesus. So you have Jesus inviting John into this throne room. Um, and then, verse 2, we see, at once I was in the Spirit. Um, again, just kind of, it's kind of signaling to you another image is happening here, another vision. Um, and so there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Um, so, you have, so now you have Jesus is, is there, has invited him up. You have the Father is there. And then we find out in verse 5 that this sevenfold spirit, which is this imagery that we see art going all the way back to chapter 1, and, and almost 98% of people would say this, this is the Holy Spirit that John is referring to here, this sevenfold, complete, full spirit. Um, and as we'll see, this spirit is sent out into the world as we get into chapter 5. Um, but you, the point is, though, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In, in the very similar way that you see in chapter 1, um, where John says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit, before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And so, again, the Trinity, um, this language of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit present throughout Revelation, it's all over the place. Um, and so what you see in this throne room is just kind of the unity and the glory and the power and the beauty and just the splendor of who God is. 
Um, but again, you have this heavenly council, this heavenly council made up of 24 elders. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 4. Um, and again, I told you this last week, there's like 13 different kinds of views on who these 24 elders are. Um, are they uh, the apostles in combination with kind of the, the patriarchs from the nation of Israel, going back to like kind of the 12 tribes? Is it the, the apostles mixed in with some prophets? Is it kind of a combo of all of these? Is it the church? There's all sorts of um, debate on who they are. Either way, they are, um, they're there. There's a sense of royalty with them. They're th- this purity with them. Um, and they're there, not by themselves. There's these four living creatures that we see um, described here, beginning in like verse 6. Um, and most people say these are angels. Um, we see um, these, these creatures present in places like Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. Um, and so even if they are angels, though, they definitely seem to be of a higher order, so to speak. Um, and so some people kind of see this as a really a heavenly council. You remember the book of Job, um, and, and God kind of had this kind of meeting, so to speak, in the throne room, kind of this, you know, heavenly kind of council, and that's kind of, in a way, what you're seeing here. Um, but either way, um, throughout chapter 4, we saw this, but also as we see going into chapter 5, um, there are five hymns listed five hymns that are listed, two in chapter four, uh, and then three in chapter five. Now, what's interesting about these hymns, um, the first hymn comes in chapter four, verse eight, and we see the living creatures are singing. So if this truly is kind of a higher order of angels, cherubim, seraphim, these are just types of angels. We won't go into all that. But these living creatures that are there before the throne of God, they are singing this first hymn. Uh, and then the second hymn comes in verse 11 of chapter 4, and it's the 24 elders that are now singing the second hymn. What's interesting when you get into chapter 3, as we'll see a little bit more here tonight, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, we see the third hymn, and it's the living creatures and the 24 elders who are singing together that third hymn. And then the fourth hymn, which we'll look at definitely a little bit more here tonight, is what some people call this sevenfold hymn. And it's all about the worthiness of who Jesus is, the lamb who was slain. And he's basically given seven things that he is worthy of. And so again, you have kind of the seven John loves that number seven. God loves that number seven. This completeness but wholeness. But you kind of have this sevenfold hymn. It's the fourth one. Um, and it is sung by, as you see in chapter 5, these countless angels, these thousands upon thousands, myriads of angels. So you have the heavenly council, the 24 elders, you have the four living creatures, but now all of a sudden you have almost the entire spiritual realm is now worshiping gods, um, worshiping Jesus in this sevenfold hymn. Um, in participation with the heavenly council now. So in, in, in a way, it's the entire spiritual world is, is participating in this worship. And then the fifth and final hymn, as you see in verse 13 of chapter 5, it's, it's all creation. All creation is worshiping um, gods, um, whether on, in heaven or on earth, under the earth, everybody 
Um, as scripture says multiple times, truly every tongue shall confess Jesus is Lord, seen or unseen, um, the physical world or not. So it's really, really cool. You see these five hymns. Um, but overall, you're seeing in these uh, two chapters, four and five, a very, it's very Trinity-driven. This is who God is and all his splendor. It's he who brings forth creation and salvation and redemption and restoration. And he's the one who has and who will bring forth new creation. Um, as we see, and this is crucial when you get into chapter 5, that third hymn, it's a new song. It's a new song. Um, and all creation is singing his praises and offering worship. So really that's just a little bit of a recap of chapter 4, a little bit of a glimpse of chapter 5. But tonight we're just going to kind of kind of rest in chapter 5 um, and then introduce chapter 6. Uh, so let's just read chapter 5 and then we'll kind of break this down a little bit here. Um, so chapter 5, verse 1, and this is what John writes. So again, this is all part of the same uh, vision that again began back in chapter 5. So this is what he writes. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, so we'd say this is God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So again, the imagery is kind of like God the Father is there, the one sitting on the throne. He has this scroll in his right hand. But it's sealed with seven seals. And so we're going to see six of those seals broken tonight in, um, or sorry, really more next week in chapter 6. But you won't see the seventh seal broken until chapter 8. Um, we'll look at that a little later on. But So that's kind of the picture. So John is seeing this. He says, And then I saw a mighty, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And there in the center of the throne, um, I saw a lamb standing among the four living creatures and among the elders as though the lamb had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God's from every tribe and language and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our gods, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice, all these angels, together with the heavenly council, were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise. So that was the fourth hymn. Now then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So it's kind of like a nice little Almost like a church service. It's, it's almost kind of what it strikes you as. But anyways, let's kind of break this. Um, let's break this down here. You'll see on your handouts. Um, so in Revelation 5, it, it's a heavy focus on Jesus. Heavy focus on Jesus. Jesus is declared to be the Lion of Judah. We see that in verse 5. And this is a reference to Genesis 49. You remember when Jacob was kind of had something to say to every single one of his children, each, each kind of um, person who was over the tribe of um, Jacob or Israel. So he has something to say about every one of his sons. And you go back to Genesis 49, he's talking to Judah, and this is where we get this language about a lion of Judah. Uh, but then he also, Jesus is declared not just to be the line of Judah, but also the root of David. The root of David, R-O-O-T. Um, and this is a reference to Isaiah 11, especially. If you just go back and read Isaiah 11, uh, you have that language. Uh, but it's also a reference to Jeremiah 23, but also Jeremiah 33 as well. Uh, so Jesus is declared to be the line of Judah, the root of David, and he is the one who has conquered. He is the one who has conquered. Again, you see that in verse 5. Now, some of your translations might say that he has triumphed, or he is the one who has conquered. Either way, he is the one who has victory. He has triumphed. He's conquered something. So he's declared to be the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the one who has conquered. So this is very kind of um, Messiah-type language. This is the Messiah, the Anointed One. There's no second-guessing about it. This is the one who came to fulfill all the prophets, as Jesus said. He came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's declared to be the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the one who has conquered or has triumphed but then you keep going on in your handout here that I have he is then seen so he's declared that but then verse 6 then he sees something a little different 
So the angel declares this is who he is, um, but then he, he kind of turns and doesn't see necessarily a lion, he sees a lamb. So, uh, where are we at? So he is seen as the slain lamb. Slain is S-L-A-I-N. The slain lamb, looking as if he had been slain, my translation says. It's, it's literally a, a word that means to be like cut in the throat. Um, it's, it's, it's very graphic. Um, he is the slain lamb at the center, at the center of the throne. This is Interesting transition here in verse 6. Now, some people d- debate this, this word that John uses here uh, because earlier on you see that he's standing at the right hand of the one on the throne. But here he uses language that almost means that he's at the center now of the throne or he is among the throne. Uh, some people debate whether or not he is actually literally on the throne or if he's still just kind of out in front of the throne. Um, We'll look a little bit more at that here in a moment. But Jesus is now seen as the slain lamb at the center of the throne. In other words, he's he's out there among the center of this heavenly council. He's now the center focus of everything that is happening. Uh, He's encircled by the four living creatures and the elders and everything that's going on. Um, And he is the one who sends the spirit of God into the world. You see that language in verse 6. His horns, his seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. This Again, this is that sevenfold spirit that we see before the throne of God going back to chapter 1. We see it in chapter 4 um, that God has sent into all the earth. So this is a huge moment um, that really is going to set the stage for the rest of the book. Um, and especially as we see this scroll, and we'll mention, get to the scroll in just a moment, Um, but you really begin to see so much come from this scroll, mystery being revealed. Um, But let's just break this down a little bit, kind of what we just looked at. Um, And and I kind of have it broken down this way. Let's first look at Jesus' victory at Calvary. So that next blank there you've got is Jesus' victory at Calvary. And what I'm getting at here is looking at what the angels just said about declaring him the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the one who has conquered. But then how he's also getting this image of a slain lamb. So what's going on here? Um, so to really look at Jesus' victory at Calvary, I want to compare Revelation 5 to some other passages that I've listed here on your page. Um, so one of those passages is Isaiah 53. And no doubt does John have this in mind. We know the Isaiah 53, most people talk about it as the kind of the description of the suffering servant, right? Um, It's a a great chapter, and uh, I'll just read it really quick here. Isaiah 53. Um, let's see, verse 1, Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root. There's this kind of language again, the root of David, the root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There's nothing in Jesus' appearance that said, that's the one. You know, this, this must be God incarnate, God in human form. He was despised. He was rejected by mankind. John affirms that in John 1. Um, he was a man of suffering, and he was familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now get to verse 7. This is really the connection here. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So again, what is John seeing here? He's seen a slain lamb. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Um... And he just goes on with this, this beautiful description here. But um, so my point is, we, we, we know this. We, we know that passage. We know um, what God accomplishes for us at the cross. Redemption, salvation, forgiveness of sins. He who knew no sin became our sin. As Isaiah is here, he's crushed for our iniquities, for our transgressions, um, Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know this. We often acknowledge it. Uh, and we talk about it. But sometimes what we forget to talk about is that at Calvary, Jesus wasn't defeated. He was declaring his victory. And this, this is stuff that, we, you know, sometimes we, we forget. And it's the paradox of the cross that I want to look at here. Um, because again, he's declared that Jesus, the, the angel declares that this, this Jesus is the one who has conquered. How has he conquered? He's conquered through his death, becoming this slain lamb. And so how do we know this? Well, the New Testament talks about it. So if you go back to like John 12, I believe I have that on your handout, John 12, um, I have that there for you. Yeah, John 12, verse 30, 33, 30 through 33 in specific, specifically. Um, and you have this voice. It's the Father talking about how he'll be glorified basically in and through Jesus. And the people there think it's thunder. They don't know what's going on. So Jesus says in verse 30, 30 that this voice was for their benefit, not Jesus's. Um, verse 31, he says, Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now is the time for the prince of this world to be driven out. Okay, how is he going to do that? How is he going to bring judgment on this world? How is he going to drive out? He's talking about the devil here. How is he going to drive out this evil one, this devil, the father of lies that he 
says earlier on in the Gospel of John. How is he going to do it? It's this way. Verse 32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So immediately you're walking through John's Gospel, you should immediately go back to John chapter 3. When Jesus told Nicodemus, I'll be like that snake that was lifted up in the wilderness, Numbers 21. If you remember that scene, if you go back and read it, there was a, largely because of their rebellion, there was this poison that was coursing through the camp. People were dying and all this kind of stuff. It's a really weird image, or really weird scene. And God doesn't take the poison away. What he does is he tells Moses, fasten a snake, an image, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And anybody looks upon that snake, what will happen? The poison will be removed, right? Jesus is saying, that's me. You have a poison coursing through your, your body. You have to be, in John's gospel, the language is born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus. You, you have to be, that poison has to be taken out of you. You have to, in essence, be born again. Born of God, no longer the flesh. How does that happen? To look upon Jesus and believe. That's the message of John's gospel. And so Jesus is saying, I'm that snake on the tree that will be lifted up to draw all people into myself. Now here's, here's more to this image, though, because the snakes are the ones that were coming into the camp and biting them, and that's the poison, the venom that was coursing through them. Cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus becomes the curse. And so if I look upon him, this... I am saved from the curse that is coursing through me, which is sin and death. And this is language that Paul would pick up a little later on. But Jesus is saying it again. So he said that back in John 3. Now he's saying, so now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now is the time for the prince of this world to be driven out or to be judged and condemned here. And verse 32 says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw people to myself. And then John clarifies for us, for us readers, if we still don't understand, Jesus said this, verse 33, to show the kind of death he was going to die. So keep that in mind, because then you go to Colossians 2, and Paul picks up on this, and he says, listen, verse 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins, and you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive, so you were born again. He made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So, in other words, he's now canceled. Like We, we owed a debt that we could not pay back. Think about the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? We owe this debt that we could not pay back. But Jesus here has canceled that debt. Says it's forgiven, wiped clean. How did he do that? Paul tells us, verse 14, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's how he took it away. That's how he took your um, indebtedness away, your debt. That's how he took away your transgressions. Remember what Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And hearing this, verse 15, he says, having disarmed the powers and the authorities. So we could be talking about the physical powers and authorities like Rome or the religious leaders who were 
pushing for this, or we could also be talking about the devil himself. Probably both. Having disarmed them, the powers and the authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, conquering them. How? By the cross. See, this is the paradox. You see, it was the last who became first. He laid down his life and it was actually elevated to perfection and glory and so on. So how does he have victory? How does he triumph? And again, this is language that John is seeing here and the angels telling him in Revelation 5. So he is the one who has conquered. How did he conquer? By becoming that lamb slaughtered for us on the cross. The author of Hebrews picks this up. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. He says, since the children have flesh and blood... He, too, shared in their humanity. So, again, the the word who was with God in the beginning, the word who was God, this word took on flesh. So he shared in their humanity. The author of Hebrews has in mind here Jesus. So that by his death, death on a cross, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So Jesus became human so that by his death on a cross, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So again, this is why John in 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And how did he do this, ultimately? Well, Jesus said, now is the time for the ruler of this world to be driven out. How so? By my death. By my death. And it's through his death and burial and resurrection in which Jesus can finally say, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Wait a second, aren't you a carpenter's son, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth? You're telling us all authority in the cosmos and the universe, seen and unseen, belongs to you? Yes, he's saying. At Calvary, Jesus conquers. He has victory at Calvary. He drives out the enemy. He claims victory over death and the devil and the power that they have over us. This is why Jesus can have the audacity to tell Martha that those who believe in him, though they die, yet shall they live. Those who believe in him, they'll never die. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he accomplishes at the cross. Um, So again, all authority belongs to him. So again, as I said, it's the great paradox. What's up is down. What's down is up. The first will be last. The last will be first. Those who surrender their life will actually save their life. Those who try to save it will lose it. Jesus' supposed defeat is actually his victory. See, this is the irony. Like, if, if, like, you know, if you really are God, why don't you come down off that tree? It's actually him staying on that tree in perfect obedience unto the Father, even unto death on a cross, that shows himself to be God himself. And it's something, though, the enemy could not see. Whether we're talking a Roman authority whether we're talking a religious authority, whether we're talking the devil himself, 
He could not see what was going on. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. Wisdom. It's a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood this mystery and this wisdom. Why? Because if they had, Paul says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't realize that by killing him, they were actually making a way for God to create new humanity, little sons and daughters. In other words, to tear the curtain from top to bottom, to make a way for you and I to enter the most holy of holy places, not as slaves, but as redeemed sons and daughters. It's actually through the cross that he gains victory over everything and everyone. Um, But it's not just that the enemy couldn't see it. Now the enemy wants us to not acknowledge it, to not understand it, or to not believe it. That at the cross, Jesus, our slain lamb, proved himself the Lion of Judah, the great Passover lamb that came to defeat death and the devil, making a way for salvation, redemption, restoration, new creation, and so on. That's why we read earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Come on, that's not his sign of victory. It's a, it's a guy dying on a tree like a criminal. Like, what are you talking about? It's foolishness to those who are dying, but to those who are being saved, it is actually the power of God. This is why Paul says, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we just preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. They don't understand it. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them why the Messiah would die in such a way. They don't see victory in his defeat. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Jesus, the slain lamb on the tree, that's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Um, And the foolishness of God, it's wiser than human wisdom, Paul says. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So, at Calvary... Jesus has victory, and it is the sign of his strength and power. It's the moment he defeated death and the devil. And this is why, again, we talked about this last week, this is why John in 1 John says, listen, this is the whole message of 1 John. If you're in Christ, you're a follower of Christ, you have overcome, he says this in 4.4 in 1 John, you've overcome the spirit of the Antichrist, In 2, 13 and 14, he says, you've overcome the evil one. 
And 3 3, he says, You've overcome even when your own hearts condemn you, you've overcome your flesh. And in chapter 5, 4 through 5, he says, You have overcome the world. Why? Because he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. But ultimately, this passage in chapter 5 also draws our attention to Exodus 11. And this is really where we see the Passover lamb, right? And we know the story, the ten plagues and everything. The last plague is the death of the firstborn. How were the Israelites to be delivered from this wrath that was coming? They were to take a lamb and to, to slaughter it and to take its blood and put it on their doorpost. And for those who had the blood of the lamb on them, on their doorpost, then the wrath of God or the, the angel of death would pass over that house. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. So there's a lot of things here being declared, but ultimately at Calvary, Jesus has victory. He proves himself to be the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the one who has conquered, and he has conquered not through the way the world thinks people conquer, not through the way the Jews expected him to conquer. He conquered by laying down his life on a cross. This is why Paul in Philippians 2 says, because of this obedience and faithfulness, he was obedient unto the Father, unto death, even death on a cross. God is what elevated him now to the highest position there is. At Calvary, Jesus has victory. And then we see in this passage, your next spot here, that the Father and Jesus send the Holy Spirit. So again, the, the theme of the Trinity here is constant because it's all of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working ultimately in and through Jesus to bring all this about. Um, but again, why the Father and the Son? Well, we could look at the language here that the Father is on the throne. We see that Revelation 4, 2, and 5, 1. We also see that Jesus is at his right hand. We see that um, in Revelation 5, 1. Um, and so we see, um, so Jesus at his right hand, we see that earlier on, but now we see Jesus standing at the center or right there in the place of the throne um, in 5, 6. And again, whether he is standing there or not, he has, he has assumed this position uh, at the center. The, the, in essence, the place that is reserved for the throne. Jesus is now there uh, in that same honorary, authoritative position as God the Father. And it's as John said in John 1, that the Word was with God, the Word was God. But I think the biggest moment in which Jesus reveals his unity with the Father, his distinction with the Father, but unity with the Father is in John 14. Philip, one of the twelve, asked Jesus in verse 8 of chapter 14 of John, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You keep talking, you keep saying things and doing things. Why don't, can you just show us the Father? That, show us God's, in essence. Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me, again, they've walked the streets with this guy. They've had coffee with him. They've ate breakfast with him. They've um, seen him sleep. They've seen him, you know, all that kind of stuff. People grew up with him. His family's seen him, all this kind of stuff. 
He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's blasphemous if he's not really who he says he is. So how can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10 in John 14, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And again, Paul will pick up on this, um, basically to talk about how the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And as we study the Trinity, we know that the Father and the Son are distinct from each other, but they're one with each other. This is why Paul can say in Galatians, like, it's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. But it's not that Jesus physically lives in me. He's a human being just like you are and me, raised in, in perfection. It's that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. To have the Holy Spirit in you is to have Jesus in you. They're distinct from each other, yet one with each other as we study the Trinity. But anyway, so he says, The Father is in me, and I in the Father, and so on. The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Um, so again, here in Revelation 4 and 5, you see that Jesus is distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father. Um, again, going back to Revelation 1, we see it even in chapter 4. But it's the Spirit that goes out from the throne. So we see in chapter 1 that the, the sevenfold Spirit is before the throne. And then you see that the Spirit is there in chapter 4, that the Spirit is there before the throne. But now what you see in chapter 5, you see the sevenfold Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. And I would say that it's, it's the Father and the Son sending him out. How do we know that? Well, I think I put those verses there. My paper dropped. If you keep going further in John 14, after what those words we just read a moment ago, we see both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So listen to John 14, 26. Listen to what Jesus says. But the Helper, the Advocate, or the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then you skip down to chapter 15, verse 26, literally one chapter later, and Jesus says this, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So again, this is the Holy Spirit who is there before the throne of God, who is present with the Father and the Son, and the Father will send him out, but now Jesus is saying, I will send him to you as well. And then again, in John 16, 7 through 11, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, then the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. So again, the language here that John sees in Revelation 5 is that um, the sevenfold spirit 
of God sent out into all the earth. Jesus prophesied about this in John 16. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he, because he's a person, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus clarifies that statement. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And here, this verse 11, this kind of ties into what we were talking about a second ago, but concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is or has been judged. So again, you see Jesus sending the Holy Spirit out into the world, and not just him, but also, as he said in John 14, the Father will also send him. And again, in Acts 1, 4 through 8, we see that uh, on one occasion, Jesus was eating with them. This is after he resurrected from the dead. And he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift that my father promised. So again, it's, it's this, inner, this language that's being inter-exchanged here between Jesus and the Father, promising the Holy Spirit, giving the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is that born-again language we see in the Gospel of John. Then they gathered around Jesus and they asked him, well, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a massive question. But Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times, the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And thus you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Spirit is sent out into the world to bring conviction to the world on multiple things, but also to live in his people. We see that at Pentecost in Acts 2. And now he goes forth into all the earth as a witness to who Jesus is, the line of Judah, the root of David, the one who is conquered by and through his death on a cross. Um, and so I'll just this last this last verse um, passage here, Ephesians 1, on your paper there under this, this point. This is what Paul writes. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit. So again, Jesus said the Father would give you the Spirit, send the Spirit. He says he will send the Spirit. And now, so it's kind of both. And now you see Paul even talking about the Father giving the Spirit, that he may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and in every way. 
So again, let's just kind of wrap this up. In Revelation 4 and 5, we see the Trinity. We see the supremacy of the Trinity. But ultimately, as we transition into chapter 5, we just see um, basically the Trinity, the unity, the power, the supremacy, the authority of the Trinity displayed in and through the person and the work of Jesus, ultimately on the cross and in his death and resurrection. The slain lamb. As John the Baptist said in John 1, recorded in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's through his death that he conquers. He gets victory, and he offers that victory now to us. Freedom for the captives. And again, this is made more clear in the sevenfold hymn in verse 12. Um, just really quick so you can get those filled in. In the sevenfold, sevenfold hymn, Jesus the Lamb who is slain, because of who he is, because of what he has done, because of God's work in and through Jesus, he is worthy to receive these seven things. You can see it in verse 12. Power, power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Meaning there is... No other name given to us under heaven by which we must be saved, Peter says. He's the great one. He is the line of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God in human form. He is fully man, yes, but also fully God. He is the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. Your sin and my sin. He has conquered death and the devil in and through his death, burial, and resurrection. Thus, he has been elevated to the highest position there is. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. He is over every principality, according to Paul. There is nothing above or beside him. He is Lord. And thus, he is worthy to be praised for all eternity by all creation. This is who Jesus is. And... The reason I think this is kind of that really kickstarts what's about to happen with the scroll is because even as John is weeping here, the angels reminding him, or the elders reminding him, hey, listen, listen, we have Jesus. And he is worthy to open the scroll. And so you can kind of see in your handout there, we'll look at Revelation 6 next week. Um, but we see the seals. There's seven seals that keep this scroll, in essence, locked up. We see the scroll introduced to us in chapter 5, verse 1. Um, we'll look at that next week. But the seals we see, in essence, cracked open um, in chapter 6. And those seals reveal these six things. With each seal, with seal number one, you see the white horse and the bow. We'll look at that. The second seal, you see the red horse and the sword that comes with that. We'll look at that. Number three, you see the black horse and its scales. Um, we'll look at that one. Number four, then you see the, with the fourth seal, the pale horse. 
and with it comes wars and famines and plagues and wild animals and wild things. Number five, you see then the souls of the martyrs, and they're told to be patient for a little while. And then number six, you finally see the wrath of God coming. And then again, you don't see the seventh seal opened until chapter eight, and we'll look at why. Uh, But that's just kind of where we're going next week. Any questions, comments, thoughts before we close in prayer? A lot to meditate on tonight, so I'll close this prayer. I'm up here if you've got any questions. Um, again, coming up in March, um, I will have a week where we seek to try to answer all questions up to that point. Um, so if you got one, you're like, man, this is, I'm really struggling with this one or that, make sure you write it down and get that to me. And uh, somebody left names of God up here, and if that was you, come, come let me know. I, I don't know what that, what I was gonna, supposed to say with that or do with that. But anyways, so let me close this prayer, and then we'll, after that we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. We love you. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. And Father, truly through your words and the spirit that you give us for all those who believe, Father, continue to up, open up our hearts and minds to see who you are, what you have accomplished in and through Jesus, through his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Father, help us to see what you have in store for those who love you. But Father, may it also be a wake-up call for those who are outside of Christ. Now is the time for them to repent and to believe. So we pray for that lost neighbor, that lost friend, that family member, that coworker, that stranger we're going to meet tomorrow. Father, may they come to the knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is. The one who was slain for their sin, their need for Jesus' blood upon them. Father, bring them to repentance, bring them to salvation. And may we take the message as your witnesses to the world. But we thank you for Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Promised One, the long-awaited-for One, and the Lamb who was slain for our sin. We thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, y'all are dismissed.